Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. In this episode, we go behind the scenes with director Jeff Nichols discussing his new film, Loving. The film tells the true story of Richard and Mildred Loving, an interracial couple who marry in Washington, D.C. in the late 1950s. When they are arrested and imprisoned in their hometown in Virginia, where their marriage was illegal at the time, they pursue a civil rights case, Loving versus Virginia, which is ultimately decided by the Supreme Court. In addition to Loving, which was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the 2016 Cannes Film Festival, Mr. Nichols' directorial credits include the feature films Midnight Special, Mud, Take Shelter, and Shotgun Stories. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Nichols discussed the challenges of making the film with director James Gray. Listen on to hear Mr. Nichols discuss how Richard Loving reminded him of his own grandfather and how that partly motivated him to make the film. The influence of archival footage from Nancy Bursky's documentary The Loving Story on his approach to making the film. And his direction to his editor to assemble the film without any music to ensure that the emotion came through from every scene before the score was added. Good evening. Should we get right into it or not? <clears throat> There's no small talk. They're all waiting to hear wise words from you. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, obviously, uh, it's a famous story or a semi-famous, given uh, your age group, I guess. Uh, I'm curious to know what the story means for you, what it meant for you, why you decided to pursue it. Um, there were several reasons. I'll start with the most direct, which was that Richard just reminded me of my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was the type of man that you'd sit for five hours with, he'd say five words. Um, it's a type of character that I've written before, uh, but here was a, a flesh and blood person that was, was uh, very much cut from the same cloth that my grandfather was. But as I started to think about my grandfather, I, I started to think more about my grandmother. And when you're married to a man like that, who, who doesn't, um, who is not able to communicate his feelings, his frustrations, um, even though he has them, then, then that, that makes the, the woman in that relationship have to become kind of the emotional front. And, uh, my grandmother was that for my grandfather, and I saw that in Mildred, and, and I understood that dynamic. But instead of just being the emotional voice of the family, she had to also become um, the one who understood the relevance of their place in this movement that's happening outside their world, but that is so important to them. And she's the one that has to write this letter physically to Bobby Kennedy. And I just, 
I just felt like I knew that dynamic, that relationship dynamic. Um, even though obviously my grandparents were not interracial and, and didn't have to put up with anything that Richard and Mildred had to put up with. I just felt like I knew them as people. And, and that was very endearing to me. Um, did, did, did it, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but I, I'm curious, did it cause any, um, and I don't think it should have, but did it cause you any pause to deal with the sort of interracial aspect, it not being autobiographical in that way? Since sure. it sounds like you already drew on autobiographical elements anyway. Well, you know, look, uh, I'm the last guy to try and define the civil rights movement for anybody. You know, I'm 37, I was born in 1978, I'm white. Born in 1978 is disgusting to me, by the way. <laughs> but you know, um, and and the last position you know you want to be in is trying to explain something to people that they know better than you do, um, and that wasn't that wasn't what I wanted to to be involved in at all. But whenever I thought about the questions of um, am I the right person for this story? Um, those, those might make me nervous, those might make me self-conscious, but whenever I thought about Richard and Mildred, I felt totally comfortable. Mm -hmm. I really did. Um, what, I, I just felt like I understood um, maybe not their, their relationship to the outside world, but their relationship to each other. Um, that I never hesitated on. Everything else was just about me and the way people would view me in relation to the story, and that's not that's not a good enough reason not to to say yes to it. Um, also, I'll, you know, I grew up in Arkansas, and and all five films that I've made now have been written to take place in the South. And I think that films that cover this period they they sometimes miss the complexity that I saw even in the South growing up between the black community and the white community. And my dad always used to talk about it. He grew up in Alzheimer, Arkansas, which is a really small cotton town outside of Pine Bluff. And, uh, and I would always ask him, like, tell me how bad it was. Um, tell me about segregation. And he, had, and he had plenty of stories. But he would always remind me, he was like, you have to understand we depended on one another. Um, as a community, we, we needed one another to survive because we were all so poor. And, um, and I saw that in the documentary that, the, that inspired this film, it's spoken of, that, that these two communities needed each other. And there's a complexity there um, that I think sometimes gets looked over because we need to focus on uh, the horrors of Jim Crow, the horrors of segregation, um, and, and all of the all of the brutality that came from it, but we shouldn't miss the complexity that lies in the community under, underneath it. And and that's something that... I, I totally understand that. Let me ask you, uh, uh, along those lines, Jeff, wh uh, what do you feel that you owe the history? Uh, how, how, how much do you feel you owe the story to be, quote, accurate, close quote? Um, I, I felt a lot to Richard and Mildred. Um... I felt like, so I'm going to divide your question in two. Um, I do not feel like their story is a story that is is particularly representative of the civil rights movement as a whole. So um, 
if if that had been what the story was about, there should have been another storyteller for that. But when I when I thought about the details of their lives, I tried to find out everything I could. Uh, Nancy Bursky is a documentary filmmaker that made The Loving Story, which is what inspired this. I had all of her footage, all of her outtakes, all the archival footage, all of the photographs, all the um, all of the interviews with family members and and everyone else. And I I made a rule not to I tried not to make anything up in the film that I couldn't attach to a fact. Now that doesn't mean I didn't make anything up. It just means I could I could point back to something that was the basis for it, um, which is one reason why in the back third of the film which is a very strange structure, um, you know, not a lot happens. And I could probably guarantee you that more harrowing things happened to them um, in that period of hiding, but there, were, there was very little detail there. And so in lieu of making up pieces of physical violence or, or people spitting on them or other things, which I imagine happened, um, I tried to just focus on one, their day-to-day life and the, how their relationship was progressing, but two, this bigger idea about the Jim Crow South, which is this psychological threat that is just a blanket over everything. Because that's really the insidious part of it, is that it could come at you from anywhere. So I just wanted to represent this fear that is just always looming. Because really one of the most punishing things for the lovings, especially when you find out how little time Richard had left on this planet um, after the court decision in 67, was that time was taken from them. And it wasn't just taken from them in terms of they weren't allowed to be in their home, although that was it. It was also that they were constantly made to live in in fear of something. I ask you also about this, you know, this uh, whether we honor history or we don't honor... Because the picture, in, in a very great way, I think, avoids being like a kind of almost propaganda or a message movie. It almost downplays, in a way, the Supreme Court decision. It's almost an afterthought in the movie. And the, the film's style, and particularly the way the acting is modulated, the performance modulated, and the film's mise-en-scene style, you like that mise-en-scene? Um, it's very consistent with a film which is not concerned with you know, agitprop elements, if you will, more, it's more concerned with internals. Certainly. So uh, I, want, I would love it if you talk a little bit about your work and how you work with actors and how you uh, also establish the actors within the frame because it is a very controlled, restrained movie. And you don't see a lot of that these days. So I'm, I'm curious to know your method of working with the actors, if, that, if you would. Certainly. Um, well, for starters, uh, it for me, it all starts on the page. Since I'm a writer as well, um, the best thing I can do for my actors is try and create scenes with behavior that is just, it makes sense. It doesn't mean as an audience the characters are doing what we want them to do or what we think they should do, but they're doing what works inside their own behavior. Um, so, so I'm pretty methodical within the scenes themselves. I try to be with just making that make sense, you know, so that you don't have actors coming up saying, I don't think I would do this, or I don't think I would say this. There's some flow or structure to it that makes sense to them. But in this 
story in particular, um, it became kind of the culmination of a of a directing style that I've been working on for a really long time. Uh, in my first film, it was about these kind of blue collar, a lot of people call them white trash or rednecks, um, these two sets of half-brothers that begin to feud. And in that film, I just, it was almost like portraiture. It was just big wide shots that were locked off. And that was mainly because we were broke and, and we couldn't afford to move the camera. But I reverse engineered some logic there that since they weren't upwardly mobile people, they were just they were just kind of trapped there. And that's a little bit of BS um, with me having to come talk about the film. But as I took that into my next film, Take Shelter, that film was all about um, this outside force kind of pressing down on Mike Shannon's character. And so that all became one very simple move, which was a piece of dolly track pointed at Mike Shannon. And we would just do this. Um, because you just wanted to imply that there was this force just on the edges of the frame crushing this man. And then in Mud, it's the first time I ever used Steadicam. And, and that made sense for that film because that film was about a river and it was about these 14-year-old boys. And that's the way a Steadicam feels to me. It has this, you know, it has that drift to it. Well, now you... You come to Loving, and there is no drift, because these people are, are, are in a prison of, of this experience. And so I wanted all that locked off, and I wanted those actors in that really beautiful 235 frame. I wanted them stuck there, but then I wanted more movement. I, I, I knew I wanted movement. So we went back to, to everything was off of a dolly. Everything had to be locked off. So even when they move, the, the, the frame doesn't move. It just kind of stays locked with them. And, and your question was about actors, and I'm talking about no, camera direction. No, you're answering my question. But, it, but you know, it, it is, there's a, there's, a, there's a relationship between where that camera falls and where that actor falls that is um, almost oppressive, um, Will, will will you uh, uh, forgive me yeah, for just no. a second? You can continue. I, I'm curious in this. Will will you when you get to set in the morning? Will you dictate the camera position first, or will you work the scene out with the actors first and then uh, allow the camera? Is it or is it a compromise? If that makes sense, it's a bit of a compromise. But if I if actors didn't matter, which they do. Um, then it I would depends just, on who's talking, but all right. <laughs> I would just go in and I would, I would just collect all the puzzle pieces that are in my head right. because I have them. Um, I'm, uh, it's a, a blessing and a curse um, because there's a rigidity there that I sometimes um, wish wasn't. But I, so what I do because the the worst days are when I've set the camera before the actors get there because some days you just have to do it. And um, and they when they feel shoehorned, um, it's never a good experience. So I try, uh, even though in my mind I know exactly what I want to do in that scene, I bring them down, and uh, I make everybody kind of kind of leave if we're inside a, a small interior 
and I walk them through, this is kind of how I saw um, the blocking in my mind um, on the page and then through the location scouting. I saw you kind of over here. And sometimes they have um, suggestions, not always, but sometimes. And I try to listen to those because I don't want to, I don't want to shoehorn them in to something that feels weird. Like, for instance, that scene where he comes home drunk from the bar and tells her, I can take care of you. Originally, in my head, I had him at the foot of the bed. I know this sounds a little obsessive, compulsive, but um, but because of the bed and because... This is the, the director's guilt. Yeah, right. Do you know that? Uh so we had to put him on the other side of the bed. It just made more sense, um, which completely changed then the way that I was going to shoot um, her at the opening of the scene. It, 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 uh, it was a fine correction, but that's an example of, had I not had the actors there, I would have shot it differently. But I actually think it was better the way um, it worked out. So I try to listen to them. We do the blocking. Then I bring in... Um, my cinematographer and my gaffer and my AD. Oh, you block without the cinematographer. Right. Mm -hmm. Just you and the actors. Right. Because it doesn't need to have anything to do yet with he, his brain someplace else. And, um, and then, uh, and so then they basically watch the scene. Sometimes I don't like to run the scenes even though. I just like to show them where everybody's going to be sitting. Sure. Um, and that's something I got from working with Mike Shannon a lot. We, we just didn't rehearse ever. Yeah, uh, do you, I was going to say, so you don't rehearse, the, obviously, I know why you don't rehearse the scene on the day, you know, with them there. Right. Do you rehearse beforehand? No. No, no. discussion? No. Uh, on this film, we did, but we only made it through about half the script, but we did kind of a page turn with, with Joel and Ruth and I. Um, just to kind of track, uh, I don't know, just to kind of track things for them and make sure everything was clear. Um, Ruth felt very nervous, I think, at the beginning of this. She was very nervous about getting Mildred right because she really, I think, through living with the documentary and the archival footage, fell in love with her. And and I just I was feeling some weird energy, and I felt like I needed to kind of walk them through it together. And one good thing came from that, which is we made the collective decision that uh, when they're sitting in that first lawyer's office and he tells them that their exile will be for a period of 25 years, she does this really interesting thing where she leans into him and he turns away from her. I don't know if anyone noticed. But um, from that point on, they don't touch each other again physically until they're driving into D.C. And um, and there, there are a handful of scenes. They, they're then in the... In, the courthouse being sentenced, they then have to pay their tab to the court clerk. Then they say goodbye to her parents, and through all these scenes, they don't physically touch. And um, and that's something that came from that page turn, but it's not something I typically do. No. So then, really, improvisation is a no-no. It sounds like. Kind of. I mean, it's. Um, I don't think it's it. You know, um, yeah, nobody's running around doing anything crazy, no. Um, and and again, I, I I admit that as a as a potential limitation, but it's, um, but I don't know. It, it it's just never really come up 
Uh-huh. But, but you have, I mean, you're, you're nine years old, and you've been able, in, in a very short order, I mean, I'm being facetious, but not, you've been able to establish a, st- a sense of style that is unmistakably yours Thank in you. a very short time frame. Is this, I mean, you're talking about it now. It, it started, it sounds like it started out of almost some kind of necessity. Yeah, as most independent filmmakers start, but yeah. But have you been tempted to take stuff off the truck and play with it? Be honest. Uh, well, it wasn't until the last film where we actually had trucks. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Midnight Special, we were just moving so quickly. Um, I'll tell you what, though. So I, I was explaining this movement to my cinematographer who shot all five of my films, and, uh, and Rocky Ford, our, our key grip, who's been with me since Mud. And I'm like, I want to go across, you know, walks him all the way across here, and I want to be right here with him. And I'm like, Jeff, that's not a dolly. Like, that's a crane. And I was like, I didn't tell the producers I needed a crane. That sounds expensive. Um, and so we got one, and those things are pretty awesome. Like, uh, they seem so, sur- like, uh, they seem like such a sp- splurge to me. Um, but when I saw one in action, a techno crane in action, and what you can do with it. Because I, I, um, I think, too, for whatever reason, and it's represented in the types of films I make, especially this one, but I have this weird temperance. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what part of my personality, you know, produced it. But I, I'm just terrified that camera movement will be unmotivated. Uh, I'm, I'm terrified of it. Uh, I, I want it to not call any attention to itself. I want it to be motivated by character movement or by some, if I'm trying to make a point, you know. Um, well, that's a very classical approach, which is uh, something I, that appeals to me. I mean, that's sort of, it's, you know, the idea that you move the camera only when you're supposed to. Well, Two Lovers is, like feels like that. Let's talk about me for a second. I think we should. <laughs> it would make me less nervous. But the... Um, but yeah, I, and and it's weird. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not. I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of film. Uh, I grew up watching what I what I watched. Um, what did inspire you? It's hard for me to find an antecedent, really, with you. I mean, I, there's, it's 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 not. I can usually talk, you know, like, oh, he he watched a lot of Scorsese, and you know, that, but I can't do that. Well, that's you. because I didn't. I mean, I watched tons of movies growing up, but not just as a fan. Uh, I didn't start thinking about it. Uh, pragmatically as a director until college, until film school, um, which was was great, but it was also, I was still learning it. I honestly think if I went back to film school now, I would, I might lose <laughs> some part of, of whatever unique styling I've, I've stumbled into over these last five films. But I mean, you know, I was always, the ones that always struck me in film school when I started paying attention um, were the big ones, the ones in scope. I mean, um, why, why, I, 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 by the way, I've only shot films in scope as well, but why do you think that that is? I, I sort of agree, but I'm not even sure I can verbalize it. Uh, what does the scope frame mean to you? Well, the smart answer that's not really true is, uh, landscape. Uh, because I come from a flat place in the Delta. And horizon lines I've just always found really compelling. I like when you see a a line across the middle of the screen. But this thing happened 
and I can't believe I'm telling this here. Um, when in, I went to North Carolina School of the Arts, it was not, um, it was like a trade school. They just kind of throw you in uh, right in the first year. You start working with cameras and things, but we made videos. It was big, like beta video cameras. And we had a Fisher dolly, and we had to, for this five-minute first-year film, we had to do it on this really crappy little set. And I was just sitting there messing with um, the boom arm on it. And I was like, why does this shot look so crappy? Why does it look so crappy? And then I boomed down and something fell in the foreground. And then you had this happening. And it became more interesting to me. Uh, and I, I know it makes me sound super remedial, but, but when you look at that two, three, five frame and you start to, you start to, tell compound stories through framing um it just it just becomes more interesting uh it and it's something you can't do with a tighter frame you know there's a negative space maybe that implies some kind of loneliness as well, well in a close-up or two and two characters in the same shot you know um just back to that scene of him on the edge of the bed and she's behind him like that and that and when it starts to get really fun is when you start trading those off and adding hinged camera moves in the middle like those are the kinds of things i geek out about you know watching a scene in jaws where he moves the camera this much but it it changes the, the scene or if you watch butch cassie and the sundance kid there's a scene where they're in the uh you know they're waiting on they're hiding from the guys when they go into the whorehouse and they're upstairs and the whole scene's one shot but it just moves once but it it you don't think about it at all as being boring you don't think about it at all as not being covered you know sufficiently was 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 the decision to shoot on film as opposed to digital was that in some way a, a, a comment on the kind of almost classical or, re, or you know retro aspect of the movie or no was it not that conscious um it's all i've ever shot on so uh and i Me I, too. I work with the same people so i just don't know how to do anything else um but it just seemed absurd to shoot a, a period piece film digitally. It just seemed like an absurd decision to me. Um, and so, you know, but I know we're in the, in the thick of having conversations about advanced frame, frame rates and everything else, but the, the smudging that film does across things is something that it's, it, it's very necessary for me, especially in this, I mean, I felt like an imposter already standing on set, not being able to look at a set for the first time in my career and tell whether or not it was real um, or or an appropriate affectation of reality. Um, and so getting those dailies back and seeing that seeing that smudge over it, um, it was it was necessary on this one to be sure. Um, Do you let your actors watch dailies? Oh. Um, no one's ever asked. I mean, I, I, they could if they wanted to. If I, if I ran into an actor that wanted to, um, but I don't really watch dailies, you know. And that's a vestige of the poverty of my first two films. The uh, we we weren't able to process our film uh, while shooting shotgun stories. Um, so at, at the end of it, I just had all these boxes of films sitting in my parents' house, turning to vinegar and. Um, and I had to go out and get more work in order to process it. And um, and when I did take shelter, we were in Ohio, kind of like what you were saying um, about Lost City. And and 
it took so long to send the stuff off. I was getting it a week later and we had no, our, the way our schedule was built, it was four, six day weeks. There was no margin for error. We couldn't go back and shoot anything anyway. Right. So it was basically like, did you get the lab report? Is there a, sh- you know, is there a line down the middle of it that we can't fix? No. Okay. Then we'll keep going. And there's something weird about, um, since that's the way I, I made films, especially because I shoot them in strange places, you know, we're on the Mississippi river in the middle of Arkansas. I'm still not getting dailies in any functional way. Um, and now at least I have my editor out here and she's seen everything and starting to cut it together. So that's kind of a more evolved part of the conversation. But when I look at dailies, it's always a couple few days after I've already moved on to the next thing and I'm just looking, so I'll go back to look to make sure I got what I thought I got. Um, I, you know, I watch them on the, they give you the computer link and I watch them. Um, but they look like crap all the time. And so I, I try this. It just says buffering, you know, yeah. this is buffering. And then I want to throw the computer out the window and yeah. I hate everybody. Yeah. And so, you know, because I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not going to rewrite anything. I'm not going to, uh, I just need to make sure I got the puzzle pieces, you know. Um, and sometimes when you're shooting out of order, I need to remember, okay, did I get the, the connective tissue that I thought I had in that scene? Because now we're going to go shoot the scene. Doesn't sound like you watch cuts uh, as you're going. No. So you just you they shoot weird all... me out. In fact, what's that? They weird me out. I I, I get um, because I uh, would cut it differently. So because right. um, I edited my first two films, so. Um, well, editing is not really an editor's thing, you know. You well, don't really get it. I love my editor. It's a joke. Don't worry. But, 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 that's a process we can talk about too. But it's, um, yeah, it's just not. It just makes me want to go get into the editing room, and and I'm not ready for that part of the process yet. So, no, I don't watch cuts. And the film is also very sparsely scored as well. It's it's distinctly lacking in the soaring kind of orchestral music that might accompany a great triumph in the Supreme Court for a unanimous yeah. decision. Well, you know, that's an aesthetic choice as well, which is this material is so, um, to me, I don't know if it is to others, but to me it's so dramatic um, that if you put your foot on the gas pedal at all, it's just going to go too far. Um, and so, again, it it's kind of this temperance of, um, of not wanting to goose it too much, so much so that the assembly cut that my editor did, which that's all hers, you know, that's the that's the one time she has with the footage that is just for her. But I did tell her on this one, she likes to cut to temp score. I said, no music. And so we watched an assembly cut. It was like two and a half hours long with no music. And you thought this version was slow. Um, like it was slow. And... Um, but I just wanted to make sure the emotions were there for themselves because it's easy to goose these things, you know, and so much of it is silent. I wanted to make sure I was feeling it. I was feeling the thing for real before I, I helped it any. Um, this man's holding signs that say five minutes, one minute. Oh, my god! Like, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm on a game show. I guess uh, if since we have one minute left, I suppose I should ask you if there's something that... I didn't ask you that you feel that you wanted to talk about. Well, because it seems to be a thread through through all the questions about the choices. Um, I mean, the reason, uh, other than I just didn't want it to be cheesy, 
But the reason for all of these systematic choices about the approach is because I feel like I feel like the in a way the court case was a foregone conclusion. Um, we've we've seen that type of film before, and even if you know the Loving case, you know they won. Uh, that's not really the point. That's not really why we're telling this story. We're telling this story um, because we so often forget that there are people at the center of these things. Uh, and, and that's going to get a little cheesy too, if I keep going with that, but it's, uh, but it's the truth. And so it's cheesy. Well, you know, it's, it's, it, it seems like such a simple idea that we have to remind ourselves that all of these, um, social issues that we have, political issues, religious issues that we have, that they all come back to um, people trying to live their lives. And we have, our, we have our opinions and we have our belief systems that we apply to them, but, um, but we're really just talking about people in their homes trying to live their life. And so if, if that's the point I'm trying to make with the film, uh, and that's the point that I think Richard and Mildred made with their lives, um, it makes sense to try and just keep it, keep it very humanistic in all of these aesthetic choices that we're talking about. So, well, I really appreciate you coming here and talking with us. Well, about I appreciate you movie. talking to me about thank it. Thank you, Jeff. and thank you all for coming. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q and A. You can check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.